Father in heaven, we are very grateful. We thank you so much for the privilege to come together as a family that we may study your word, that we can receive the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can look to Jesus as our example, even as we see the end of the world approaching, as we see a final crisis that is soon to come upon us. We are grateful that we don't have to look to man, but we can look to the man, Christ Jesus. And I believe that by beholding him, we all can become changed into the same image. And so grant us your Holy Spirit, we pray, and truly open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your word. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The Bible. The Bible presents a position that God's people were going to fall into. We have been given the greatest investment of heaven. Heaven has invested unto us what is known as the mighty cleaver of truth, which is the first, second, and third angel's message. There is no other message that can make the work come to a close. It is only the three angels. And the reason we know that is because when you study Revelation 14, it was after the three angels' messages were given that you see in verse 14. Turn there with me in Revelation 14 and look at verse 14 and you will see that the Bible shows that there is only one true gospel message that is designed to bring something very special about. And I want you to see how the Bible defines it. As we look at Revelation 14, we're going to consider verse 14, and let's notice what the text says. Revelation 14, and we are looking at verse 14. And if you're there, just please say amen. amen. It is after the three angels. You know, if you, look at, if you look at Revelation 14 carefully, especially from verse 6 onward, it's fairly chronological. Because you have a first angel, you have a second angel, you have a third angel. And after the third angel's message is given, if you look at verse 13, it introduces martyrdom. It talks about people who die. People who die, but the Bible counts a blessing upon them. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. For though they sleep, their works do follow them. So we have to understand that the reality is, is that there is going to be a repercussion as it relates to the world and the church when God's people stand for truth. We will be a persecuted people and there will be some who will even have to have their blood spilled that it will continue to be, as it were, fertilizer to the generation that's going to behold these events and be thou faithful unto death. You know, that's the only reason why God allows Christians to constantly be killed is so that it becomes an encouragement to the next generation to stay faithful also unto death. It is only after the close of probation. It is after we, we get to Revelation 15, 8. When the sanctuary is now filled with smoke and no man can enter therein and the intercessory work of Christ is done. And now Revelation 22 kicks in, which says, let him who's filthy be filthy still. Let him who's holy be holy still. If you're alive at that time, good news, you are not going to die. Those are going to be the individuals that's going to make it all the way through to see Jesus come. Amen. Now, understanding that verse 13 makes it clear that, yes, martyrdom is going to be part of the package. But then verse 14 says. It says in verse 14, and I looked and behold, a white cloud and upon the cloud, one sat like unto the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the what? The harvest of the earth is ripe. So the harvest, when you go to Matthew 13 and verse 39, the harvest represents the end of the world. So literally, the three angels' messages is the last gospel message to be given to the world to prepare the world for the end so that we can be ready to go home with Jesus. This is the investment that God has given unto us. 
And when God gave this message to us, we have to understand that in this message is contained every truth that we need to know how God's word can be finished. So it becomes imperative for you and I to study this work. But the problem is, is that while God gave us this incredible investment, he also reveals to us a reality of our response to this investment. How does he do that? In Revelation 3. In Revelation, the third chapter, we see how God's people are going to respond. We know that the first angel's message deals with judgment. The third angel's message also deals with judgment. It shows us how to stand true to God, knowing that the investigative judgment is going on. So when you think of the three angels' messages, it's very much centered around the judgment of what's going on in heaven in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, why this is interesting is because God has a message to the people of the judgment. They're called Laodicea. And when you look at God's message to the Laodiceans, the Bible says in verse 14, it says in Revelation 3, 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. And so then because thou art what? Lukewarm, Lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. What does God say he'll do? He says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And then he helps us understand why he has to give such straight counsel. Verse 17 says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art what? Wretched, Wretched miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's why I told you yesterday, I believe that the Laodiceans, they don't know their true condition. A lot of us, we don't know our true condition. And it's very easy to think we're doing okay when in fact we're doing absolutely horrible. And so it is that we have to look at things with eyesight, that discernment that only God can give that we may have an understanding of our true condition. And when that comes in, we will stop listening to ourselves and we'll start listening more to God. Amen. Now, knowing this, the Bible gave a picture of the last days and the condition of the church in the midst of understanding the judgment, living in the time of judgment, knowing what God requires of us in the judgment. At the same time, God says, well, I'm going to spell out what brought us into this Laodicean lukewarm condition. It's spelled out in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Bible says in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, and this is on the screen. It says, this know also that in the last days, what kind of times? Perilous times shall come. And I believe it's perilous because the church was called to be the light of the world. But based on this, I see more darkness than light. And so notice what it says. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves. This says covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady and high minded. And what is the reality? They love what? Pleasure more than they love God. You know, parents. We all have a work to do. Sometimes we can look at our children and we can see they love pleasure more than they love God. And we know that if our children are in that condition, we know there is no hope of salvation for them. We have to train and direct and instruct our children in such the fear and admonition of the Lord that a time comes that they would prefer to pray than to play. And I'm not talking about all their lives because recreation, recreation is actually necessary for the people of God. So don't make no mistake about it. I am not saying that having true recreation is a bad thing. There's a time to play. There's a time to run. There's a time to do things. But there's something wrong when a child can sleep through church and stay awake watching television program after television program after television program after television program. You understand that? 
There are very clear signs that our children can give us that they love pleasure more than they love God. And that is a condition of lost. An individual is in a lost condition when we see ourselves in that place. Christ doesn't want this, but it becomes our reality. And the sooner we accept our reality, the sooner we can say, you know what? I do love pleasure more than I love God. I do love to feed myself, do what I want to do than what God wants to do. As a matter of fact, Lord, I'm starting to be honest with myself to the point to say, I really don't love you. I really don't have a desire to know you. You know what the Bible calls that? Cold. But what did God say? He says, I would that thou wert cold or hot. It is better to be cold and recognize, Lord, I don't love you. I don't want to serve you. I actually don't want to do your will, but I know that you are loved. So I'm going to ask you to do for me what I can't do for myself. Put your love within my heart. When we recognize we're in a cold condition, at least we can see that and then say, Lord, warm me up. But when an individual already says, no, no, I'm warm. I love Jesus. But at the same time, everything in their life demonstrates they love sin. That is when we have a very serious problem. And this is what we're seeing laid out here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. People who have gotten to a place that though they're worshipers of the true and living God, the most high God, at the same time, they have fallen into this deadly trap by which there is a love for pleasure more than a love for God. And they're proud, they're blasphemers, etc. Now, how do we know that this is, in fact, a descriptive of the church? Well, if you don't mind, turn to 2 Timothy 3, but look at verse 5. When you look at verse 5, we know that this is something that is fitting to those who call themselves worshipers. And we all have to take a look at this, and we have to do some serious heart searching. I'm very thankful for that blessed Psalms in Psalms 139 and 23 and 24 that tells us, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When you look at verse five, verse five gives another description of this group here. And in verse five, it says, having a what? Having a form of what? Brothers and sisters, that is referring to people who claim to worship and know the true and living God. They have a form of godliness. The world doesn't have a form of godliness. You know how it is. When you go down these streets, especially of Southern California, You know there's no form of godliness. They are sinful and they're absolutely bold about it. That's why you can put a picture on a billboard in certain areas of Southern California and you're going to see men hugging and kissing other men. You're going to see women hugging and kissing other women. You're going to go by stores and you're going to hear all of the thumping and the bumping of hip-hop, R&B, and all the other types of music that draws the mind to the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes rather than the music that draws the mind to heaven. The world is sinful and they're bold about it, but it's in the church that we can find forms of godliness. But what is the reality? But denying the power thereof. And then the Bible says from such do what? Turn away, turn away. So as a result of this, what we learn from this lesson is that forms of godliness equals no power. You understand that? In other words, if all we do is show up to church and we find ourselves in a place where we just love to be on the choir and sing, we love to go ahead and do the scripture reading, we love to go ahead and do this and do that and do all these accolades in the church, but at the end of the day, we know that though I'm in the church, I am not in Christ. He is not first, last, and best in my life. He is not one whom I love to adore and worship and spend time at his feet learning of his character. When we know that those things are a reality inside of us, yet we're good, faithful, church-going, tithe-returning, Seventh-day Adventists, we may very well have fallen into the trap of form of godliness, and there's no power in that. And what we're getting ready to go up against in these very last moments of Earth's history, we are going to need gospel power. That's the only way that we're going to make it through these final scenes. 
So when I think about that, it makes sense when we're told a revival of what? True godliness is the greatest among us, is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. To seek this should be our first work. So we need true godliness because the problem is that in the last days, God's people were going to fall into forms of godliness. You understand that? So the issue is that in the last days, God's people were going to fall into forms of godliness when God wants us to have a revival of true godliness. So the key thing that we have to focus on when we think about revival and reformation is we have to think about what does the Bible call true godliness? Because that's what needs to be revived. And sometimes we get missed. Sometimes we miss the mark because sometimes we talk about a revival is what we need. I know lots of people that don't even say true godliness. They just say a revival is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. And they literally cut out what inspiration says. It didn't say a revival among us is the greatest and most urgent. It says a revival of what? So the most important focus for every single one of us is understanding what constitutes what? True godliness. I need to know what that is. Because that is my greatest and my most urgent of my need. And until I enter into this experience, I could probably just be going in circles and going in the motions. And so what God wants is for us to embrace this truth. So we need to understand what really is it then that constitutes true godliness. And I believe 1 Timothy chapter 3 is going to help us. So we're going to go to the book of 1 Timothy, the third chapter. And I want us to consider verse 16. 1 Timothy, we're looking at chapter 3, and we're going to consider verse 16. I'm going to show you an example of true godliness from Scripture that I believe is going to help us tremendously as we get ready to dig into some deeper views because we need to look at Jesus as our example when we study the fulfillment of prophecy. We've got to look at his character because he's our pattern man. If any of you sow, you know that you never ever sow without first having a pattern. You've got to have a pattern. When the sanctuary was made, the sanctuary was made after a pattern. And so it is. If we're going to finish God's work and be ready for the crisis, we have to follow the pattern. And the pattern man is Christ Jesus. It is not your favorite evangelist, no matter how much you like them. It is not that individual or individuals that you watch on YouTube or listen to on Audioverse or go to Three Angels to or any other organization or ministry on the web. The only person worthy of reflection is Jesus. Now watch this. You say amen, but listen to me. What I'm saying is that not even Elijah is your example. Not even John the Baptist is your example. Not even Peter, Paul, James, or John. You see, the only good that these men did was that which was reflected in the character of Christ. Somebody says, where'd you get that from? Great Controversy 91. When you read Great Controversy, page 91, paragraph 3, the prophet of God was quoting John Wycliffe. And when she quoted John Wycliffe, here were the exact words that she stated. And I want you to notice that this obviously was such a powerful point that God said it. I want it in my book of inspiration. Listen to what John Wycliffe said when he was reasoning with brethren in his day because people were so much admiring and adoring the Pope. And I want you to see what John Wycliffe had to say. This is great controversy. And I want you to consider what it says in page 91. And we're going to look at paragraph three. Watch what inspiration says here. Listen to this. No faithful man. Do you consider yourself a faithful man or woman? Well, I hope so. You better be. By the grace of God, you better be. Make your calling and election. Sure. Watch this. No faithful man ought to follow either the Pope himself or any of the holy men. Listen to this now. No faithful man ought to follow either the Pope himself or 
or any of the holy men, but in such points as he hath followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's powerful. Now watch, it says, the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, for Peter and the sons of Zebedee. Notice that John Wycliffe, now he's switching from the Pope or any of the so-called holy men of those days. And now John Wycliffe is now quoting apostles. And notice he says, for Peter and the sons of Zebedee, by desiring worldly honor, contrary to the following of Christ's steps, did offend. And therefore, in those errors, they are not to be followed. Do you understand that? That's why the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. You understand that? The only time we follow Elijah is when Elijah did what Jesus would have done. The only time we follow John the Baptist is only when John the Baptist did what Jesus would have done. Jesus Christ is the center and circumference and the complete system of truth. And therefore, when I look at Christ, I know he is my perfect pattern man. And I need not follow any other because all truth centers in Christ. And that's why Jesus says, I am the truth. So when I look at 1 Timothy 3... I'm very thankful that as I study it, I'm looking at, well, how did Jesus prepare for the final crisis? How did Jesus respond to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy? And now we're in 1 Timothy 3, and let's notice something the Bible says, because the first thing we need to understand is what constitutes true godliness. And so we're in 1 Timothy 3, and if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're considering verse 16, and the Bible says, and without controversy. Great is the mystery of what? Ah, great is the mystery of godliness. And then it says, God was manifest how? In the flesh. Praise God. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. The Bible makes it very clear that this is talking about none other than who? This is talking about Jesus. So when we think about that, when we look at 1 Timothy 3, 16, if I want to understand true godliness, who should I look to? Jesus Christ, because the Bible says that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And brothers and sisters, you will find that when we consider God was manifest in the flesh, talking about none other than Jesus. I want you to look at this. When we think about how can I demonstrate true godliness? How can I demonstrate it? How can I reflect it in these very last moments of earth's history? We don't look any further than the man Christ Jesus himself. My brothers and my sisters, I plead with you, keep your eyes fixed on Christ in these last moments. You're going to find that the arms of flesh are failing us consistently. We have no time to be elevating men and putting people on all these ridiculous pedestals and thinking that they're more than who they are. Men with like passions, just like you. And so what we need to do is we need to look to one who is, came to be like us, but yet is not like us. And we have the privilege to be like him. And that is none other than Jesus. I pray you never, ever get bored studying the character of Christ. I pray that you never, ever get tired of learning about him, listening about him, and truly seeing how can I reflect that blessed, holy, and lovely image. I'm telling you the truth, brothers and sisters. For the first time in my life, I have found a man to be attractive. Do you understand that? For the first time in my life, brothers and sisters, I have found a man to be attractive. When I look at Jesus, brothers and sisters, I learned something. Did you know the Bible says he's all 
together lovely. Is, has he become that to you? That's really the question, brothers and sisters. There are a lot of people talking about Christ. But I'm saying, has he really become altogether lovely to you? Has he become something that when you read about him, you just adore listening? That you just really get to a place where you just love to learn more and more about him? Some people are more excited about reflecting Elijah and John the Baptist and others, and we do it in very perverted manners than we do beholding the character of Christ. That's a problem, brothers and sisters. Believe me, I know what I'm saying because I have deeper layers to every point that I make because I understand the crowd. Because I pray and I talk to God before I talk to you. And I'm telling you, I know what the Lord is telling me because I see what's happening. There are deceptive images that are in front of us right now. The things that were designed to be blessings to us have become curses to us. The internet, and viewing and listening and all these things that we do with certain people. And some of us are reflecting more the image of men than the image of Christ. It's got to change if we're going to see this work finished. And so when we think of true godliness... We think of none other than Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, here's what the Bible says about this manifestation. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of what? No reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the this is why it was very appropriate for Pastor Doug to talk so much about humility versus pride. That was led by God's spirit. Because if we're really going to talk about Christ, our example, how do you explain a man who has everything and then literally dumbed himself down to become nothing? How do you explain that? A man who had everything. Jesus could have blinked his eye and had whatever he wanted. He had every right to stay in heaven and say, let those sinners die. They chose to sin, let them die in it. But he says, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to humble myself. Though I have complete equality with the Father, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to submit. I'm going to surrender that privilege of being in his presence. I'm going to go ahead and surrender that privilege to be around all these holy angels and all around this holy atmosphere. And I'm going to come down to a very sin-sick, cursed earth. Not after a year, but after 4,000 years of the plague of sin. And this is what Jesus said. And then to make it worse, this holy God says, I'll actually cover myself, not with flesh, but with sinful flesh. That's disgusting, brothers and sisters. If you and I saw a man that was homeless just for four months on the street, and if somebody said, would you put his clothes on? Many of us would say, I would absolutely not do it, especially not in hot weather. That brother's been sweating, all sorts of waste releasing from his body. Landing on his clothes, and here it is, I'm going to take his soiled clothes, and I'm going to go ahead and cover my body with it. And if somebody said, just cover your body with it just for five minutes, do you know how many of us would absolutely reject that? But Jesus, brothers and sisters, covered himself with something far worse than four months of soiled clothes. Jesus covered himself with sinful flesh for three, 33 and a half years. He did all of that because he had you and I written all over his mind. He can't imagine to go through eternity without us. So he says, I'll be willing to even give up eternity that they might be saved. How does anybody reject this kind of love? I don't even understand it, brothers and sisters. How do we reject this kind of love? And so it is when I think of godliness, I'm looking at Jesus. And when I look at Jesus, I'm seeing a man who had everything. But he says, I'm going to make myself of no reputation. I'm going to come and I'm going to serve I'm going to serve sinners, not just my father who's holy. I'm going to serve sinners who are desperately wicked. And Jesus says, I'm going to do all of that, and I'm going to do it all the way up until I die. 
So even when you and I have gone so far into resisting self and serving others, oh, I got a word for you in Hebrews 12. Go there with me. Sometimes we think we've done enough. Sometimes we resist and we strive and we try and we say to ourselves sometimes, I've tried enough, I've done enough, I've sacrificed enough. So as of this point, I'm sorry, I'm not surrendering anymore. But notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, Notice what the Bible says in Hebrews 12. We're going to consider verse 4, Hebrews 12. And we're looking at verse 4. And if you're there, please say amen. amen. When you and I think that we have resisted enough, when you think that we have done enough, Jesus says in Hebrews 12 and verse 4, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Jesus says you have not resisted against up to blood. Jesus said I resisted to the point that blood vessels popped in my head. Did that happen to you? No, then Jesus says, you got a little bit more resisting you can do. You and I need to understand, brothers and sisters, that as much as God is calling us to the denial of self, he left us a pattern man who says, I've already done it. And through my strength, you can do it. Yeah. Now watch this. So when we think of true godliness, because Jesus is faithful and true, and he's definitely manifesting the mystery of godliness. So Jesus is definitely a demonstration of true godliness. Can the church say amen? Now, knowing that, the Bible lets us know how he manifested this godliness. The way he manifested it is that he humbled himself. He became a servant. He served all the way till he died, and he never gave up. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because I'm going to show you an even more specific example of how he served. Remember, we learned yesterday that self-sacrifice is, in fact, self-preservation. Remember we learned that? To give is to live. Remember we learned that? All right. So now we're looking at Jesus and we're watching his method of self-preservation. How did he preserve himself? He did it by giving of himself. That's why evangelism is not optional for the true child of God. But we have to do it in the way that Christ did it. Amen. Now watch this. So when we look at Jesus, let's watch now how he manifested this servanthood, how he did it. So notice the Bible says in Luke four, this literally sums up the ministry of Christ. So we're looking at how did he manifest this true godliness in humbling himself and serving even unto death. The Bible says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath anointed me to what? Heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering, which is synonymous to healing, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What do you see? combined in the life work of Christ in his servanthood as he was manifesting true godliness. What do you see? You see the combining of what? Preaching and healing. Now, watch some practical examples of how he did it. Go to Matthew 9. When you go to Matthew, the ninth chapter, notice what the Bible says. Matthew 9, and we're looking at verses 1 to 6. Matthew 9, and we're going to verses 1 to 6. Matthew 9. Verses 1 to 6, when you get there, please say amen. amen. All right, so the Bible says in Matthew, the ninth chapter, we're starting at verse 1. In Matthew 9, starting at verse 1, let's look at how Jesus did this, because he's combining preaching and healing, preaching and recovering, preaching and healing, preaching and recovering. So notice how he did this. Let's watch it. In Matthew 9, the Bible says, And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, Lying on a bed and Jesus seeing their faith said unto the sick of the palsy son be of good cheer thy sins be forgiven thee and behold certain of the scribes and said within themselves this man blasphemeth 
And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it's easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. Verse 7, And he arose and departed to his house. What we see in this example of Christ is that he did both the preaching and the healing work combined. Do you see that? One minute, thy sins be forgiven me, forgiven thee. That's the gospel work. And then he says, rise, take up your bed, start walking. That's the healing work. So we see the gospel of health in the example of Matthew 9, 1 through 6. Christ combined the very fulfillment of what he said he came to do. He combined the work of dealing with the physical and dealing with the spiritual at the same time. And many times you have to wonder, why did Jesus even heal this brother? Why did he do it? The answer was in verse 6. Verse 6 says, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power to forgive sins. In other words, the reason for Christ's healing work was to endorse his spiritual work. You get that? That is the true foundation and the true context of medical missionary work. Now watch this. Now let's consider John 5. John 5. John, the fifth chapter. Let's notice what the Bible says here now. We're in John chapter 5. And let's notice what the Bible says here. John 5. And now we're looking at verses 1 to 9 and then verse 14. Again, we see Jesus literally doing what he said he came to do. I appreciate it when a man does what he said he was going to do. We live in a time where sometimes brothers make promises and don't keep them. But Jesus made a promise. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to do this. And then he did it. If you want people to have confidence in the ministry that God has given to you, don't go around making promises and then not keeping them. You want to make sure that you measure yourself. Don't plant so many watermelons that when they harvest, you can't gather them all. You got to make sure that, listen, if I'm called to do a work, I got to do it in a way that I can fulfill the work that I, co I covenanted with God that I'm going to do. And you will find the more that we do that, the better, in effect, the ministry will be. So now we're in John 5. And the Bible says in John 5, we're starting at verse 1. And it says, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Again, we see Jesus doing both a spiritual and a physical work. Physical healing, but also a spiritual work, go and sin no more. We see Jesus constantly combining what we call the gospel of health. He's constantly combining the two because he was seeking to demonstrate what really constitutes true godliness in the ideology of servanthood. This is why it is not a surprise to us that when the prophet of God was making a comment on what is true godliness, she said in Councils on Health 528, Christ gave a what kind of representation? 
a perfect representation of what? True godliness by combining the work of a physician and a minister, ministering to the needs of both body and soul, healing physical disease, and then speaking words that brought peace to the troubled heart. So when I think of the demonstration of true godliness, brothers and sisters, the demonstration of true godliness is biblical inspired medical missionary work. The more that we understand what biblical inspired medical missionary work is, the faster we will understand the experience of true godliness that God wants every single one of us to have. This is why when you look at the life of Jesus, when he saw prophecy being fulfilled, we saw yesterday Christ went to work. He went to see how many people he can reach. And the way that he did it was primarily through gospel medical missionary evangelism. How do we know that? Because inspiration says, how shall we reveal Christ? I know of no better way than to take hold of the medical missionary work in connection with the ministry. Think about this call to medical evangelism, page 41. How shall we reveal Christ? We're living in the time right now where the focus of the most holy place is Christ in you, the hope of glory, revealing Christ. The question was then asked to the prophet of God. And notice, we think she answered, but we don't understand Jesus answered. You see, some people read Ellen White's writings as a woman that's telling people about Christ. Other people read Ellen White's writing, understanding it's a testimony from Christ. That's what I read when I read Revelation 1. The Bible says it was the testimony of Jesus. It was a message that came from the Father to the Son, to the angel, to the servant, to the churches. It was a message from Christ. So then if you think about it, the question is almost interesting because it's asking Christ the question, how shall we reveal you? And Christ's answer says, I know of no better way. This is for those who understand the testimony of Jesus. I know of no better way than to take hold of the medical missionary work in connection with the ministry. And so we see, brothers and sisters, the more that we get ourselves involved in the health work in the way that Christ did it, the combining of the physical with the spiritual. You see, there's a lot of work right now where all we're doing is making people healthy, bona fide sinners. And just because we go to the cities and do a great work. As we're told, it's going to be done under the omega of apostasy. The problem is, while a great work is done and many will adore us and wonder after us, the problem is the work that Christ wanted is not getting done. Christ wanted to bring a message to sinners who were sick that they don't just simply get well, but they get saved. And if we begin to minimize our health work into thinking that because we could pull a few teeth or we can go ahead and check pressures and go ahead and do a lot of these other things, but we give no gospel. We might be working at variance with God. Because if we take a sin, sick and feeble sinner and help them become a strong, vibrant, magnificent sinner. I don't believe that's what God wants. Christ was not satisfied to just heal people from their ailments. He was not satisfied in simply being recognized as a man who knew how to help people get well. Jesus came to save people from their sins. His healing work was purely to endorse his spiritual work. That's why medical missionary work is largely, we're told, a spiritual work. 
So when I think about this, if we're really going to work as Christ worked in these last days, seeing time is almost finished, then yes, we got to get busy for the Lord. That's true. But brothers and sisters, like never before, we need to understand and embrace as Christ did health reform and gospel medical missionary evangelism. And let me give you a little sign just to let you know if you're on the wrong path. You know, there's a lot of people right now, and I see this all the time. I see it a lot, and please understand, if I've talked with any of you here, I'm not referring to you, uh, but I'm just making a general point that I make a lot of places that I go when I talk about the health work of Christ. A lot of times, we don't do health work the way Christ did it. And I'm very serious about that. We don't do it the way he did it. We are told very clearly in inspiration. Ministry Healing 127 says, disease is an effort of nature. To free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. Okay? I'm going to repeat that. I remember one time I was in a hospital and I just wanted to be delivered. I love witnessing. I really do. I, I mean, I just love witnessing, brothers and sisters. And I remember I was in an elevator and all these physicians and nurses. And I had somebody with me. I can't remember who it was. But we were talking about disease. And I just said, you know what? This is a great time to do this. So we're talking and I just said it loud on purpose because everybody was in the elevator. And I said, you know, I said, you know what disease is? And I know all these physicians, everybody, like, who's this common fisherman in here thinking he's talking about disease? You know, whatever. So I knew they're probably thinking stuff, but I didn't care. So I was just, because I know what I'm talking about. So I was just like, you know, I said, you know what disease is? Well, well, what is it? I said, disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. <laughs> and I just kept looking at the elevator. But you can see them on the side, and you see the doctor's like, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. You know? You don't understand. God gave us something that even the traditional medical world doesn't understand yet. Disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. Now, here goes the next sentence. It says, in case of sickness, step one, the cause should be ascertained. Step two, unhealthful conditions should be changed. Step three, wrong habits corrected step four then that word then was put there on purpose it means it has its place whatever comes after it says then nature is to be assisted in expelling the impurities from the system and re-establishing right conditions in the system do you know what a lot of people do somebody says oh i'm sick we say you know what i got a remedy we jump right to step four and we forgot step one, two, three. That's why I like to test people. Whenever people come to me, you know, I got a medical missionary ministry and, and we do this, that. Really? I say, well, tell me how you deal with the disease. Oh, we got these products. And when people come in with stomach aches and ailments, we give them these products. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did you ascertain the cause? No. Did you understand what the unhealthful condition was that needs to be changed? No. Did you identify the wrong habit that needs to be correct? No. Then how do you know that you might be giving somebody something that might hurt them rather than help them because you don't really know really what's wrong with them? That's that dangerous type of medical missionary where I don't put folks get in trouble. People be fainting in fever baths and all that other stuff because sometimes we don't know what we're doing right. You understand? So God says, I have an anointed program over the bodies that I created, God says, and I know how to help people when they're sick. And God says he wants us to tap into his mind that we may know how to help people when they're sick. Now, God did it in a few ways. And I've got to run, run through this because I'm going to get to this nice little part on the cooking. I believe from what I'm seeing. You guys correct me if I'm wrong. I have about 50 minutes or so. 50 minutes. All right? That's what I'm seeing. Okay, so anyhow, when I look at this, I begin to watch Christ. And God did something. You see, there was something called the Madison School. 
you know, seven-day Adventists, you want to study outposts. You want to study it because it's part of God's solution. If you and I really understood the school of the prophets, you would understand that the school of the prophets was raised up as a solution to a problem in Israel. If you want to understand true education, if you want to understand true church, if you want to understand anything as it relates to understanding God and so on, God's original plan was for it to be understood in the home. Eden was the model. Eden was like the absolute model on true education, what constituted church, the school, everything. Because Eden was everything. It was a church. It was a home. It was a school. It was everything. It was the center of true education. And that's why home leadership is perhaps one of the most important subjects that God's people need to know. If you don't know how to be a leadership in your home, you are bound to fail as a leader in the church. A leader in your organization, your business, or any place else. We got to understand all leadership begins in the home. So the more that I understand home leadership, the better I can know how to lead in the church, the better I can know how to lead in every other place. So everything's centered in Eden. But we know something disrupted God's plan in Eden, and that thing was called sin. And sin began to obviously progress throughout the children and so on. And that's why you had Lamech and you had Cain and you had others who started indulging in sin, bringing all sorts of polygamy and everything. Just horrible things started to happen amongst the people of God. So what God did through 1 Samuel was he raised up the school of the prophets. And the school of the prophets was designed to help bring people back to the original blueprint of what God gave to the Eden home. That was the whole purpose of the school of the prophets. It wasn't just a place where people learned theology so they could know how to come to churches and preach. It was a very holistic program. Now, Madison School in the days of our pioneers, Madison School became very much a model of the outpost centers because the outpost center concept started with the school of the prophets under Samuel, later on with Elijah and so on. So the outpost was something beautiful. And whenever you think of the outpost, look at it in the context of Luke 21. Let's go to Luke 21 very quickly. Just so you could look at this, because what we don't understand is that Jesus did not just work and reach souls in the city, but he had a way that he did it. And it's, it's something that was there in scripture, but it's not very forceful. So a lot of times it's easy to read it and miss it. But if we paid attention to the verses, we would have seen it come out. So when you look at Luke 21, look at verse 37 and 38. Luke 21, we're looking at verses 37 and 38. This was how Christ ministered to the people in the cities. And I believe this is what God has called us to do. So look at what it says. Luke 21, 37 and 38. It says, and in the daytime, he was teaching where? Now, where were the churches supposed to be? In the city or in the country? They were in the cities, all right? They were always in the cities. They were in the crowded places where the people were. So people knew that there was a lighthouse that they could come to to hear the message of salvation. Today, even so, we have counsel that the churches should be in the cities. It's not that a church can't be in the country, but the primary focus of where the churches were to be were in the cities. Same thing with our restaurants. Our restaurants were supposed to be in the cities. Now, going on. It says, and in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. But at night, what did he do? He went out and abode where? In the mountains. That is called the Mount of Olives. And then in verse 38, and then it says, and all the people came early in the morning to him where? In the temple for to hear him. So notice that when Jesus would do his work, he would go to the temple in the city. And then he would do his work. After he would do his work in the city, then he would retire back to the mountain. He would retire back to, let's call it the outpost. He would go back to the outpost and that's where he would get his communion, his connection with his father. And then when he has his connection, his communion with God and he has his spiritual gasoline, if you will, then he would go back into the city and continue to minister to the people again. So the concept that Christ was trying to teach us was working from the outpost to the city. This was an example that we see through Jesus. We see it through the school of the prophets and we see it through the Madison school. So when we look at the Madison School, it says 
Uh, this is called An Appeal for the Madison School. That's the article. That's the booklet. That's what you would type in rather than the PH 1.3. You can type in the PH 1.3 as well. But it says the school at Madison not only educates in knowledge of the scriptures. You see that? Not only educates in the knowledge of the scriptures, but it gives a practical training that fits the student to go forth as a self-supporting missionary to the field to which he is called. In their work at Madison, Brethren Sutherland and McGann and their associates have borne trial nobly. The students have been taught to raise their own crops, to build their own houses, to care wisely for cattle and poultry. They have been learning to become self-supporting and a training more important than this they could not receive. It says, thus they have obtained a valuable education for usefulness in missionary fields. Continuing. To this added the knowledge of how to treat the sick and to care for the injured. This training for medical missionary work is one of the grandest objects for which any school can be established. So when we think of setting up these training schools, you have what's called city missions. The people, the instrumental people in Seventh-day Adventism that got the city mission started was people like Stephen Haskell. Stephen Haskell and his bride, they actually got their first city mission started in Manhattan, in New York, in a building. So they started very, very small, and then eventually they opened up. City missions could be more so in the city, but whenever you think of an outpost, that was supposed to be in the country. Okay, so true outposts have to be in the country setting, not in the city setting. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because there were specific instructions that God gave us. And this one, I just want to hit it again, just in case anybody was doubting. But notice what inspiration says. Country Living, page 30, paragraph two. The cities are to be worked from outposts. Isn't that clear? I like clear, brothers and sisters. I don't know, but I like clear. The cities are to be worked from outposts. Said the messenger of God, shall not the cities be warned? Yes, not by God's people living in them, but by their visiting them to warn them of what is coming upon the earth. I don't know, but that's clear. That's crystal clear. So the next time somebody says, don't believe in this country living foolishness, because how are the people going to be reached? That's the consistent argument, is it not? Yes. That is the consistent refutal of the country living message is, how are the people going to be reached? We got the answer right here. Said the messenger of God, shall not the city be won? In other words, the messenger of God asked the same question. How are people going to be reached? The answer, yeah, they'll be reached, but not by God's people living in them, but by visiting them. You understand that? Second witness. As God's commandment keeping people, we must leave the cities. As did Enoch, we must work in the cities, but not dwell in them. And don't you like when inspiration says there are Enoch's today? You understand, brothers and sisters? That's Country Living, page 30, paragraph 4. So God wants to make it clear that there's a work to be done that he wants from the outpost to the city. There's a massive form of what we'll call medical missionary work because there's something called the sanitarium work. It was actually given to us on December 25th, 1865. There's a nice little booklet that you should get. You could get it from the Ellen White website, and it's called The Story of Our Health Message. If you've never studied that and you really want to get into true gospel medical missionary work, I would recommend highly that you study that booklet. It is very, very powerful, and it gives you history. It gives you all the dates and everything else. It's called The Story of Our Health Message. Very, very powerful article. Now, the sanitarium work was God's blessing. It was God's gift. 
If there's something we need to establish today, it is sanitarium work. And we cannot confuse hospitals with sanitarium work. Hospitals are not sanitarium work. It's not, because notice, this is what sanitarium work is. Sanitariums were supposed to be home-like structures of how we would go and minister to the people in the cities. Now, with the sanitarium, notice what inspiration says. In the preparation of a people for the Lord's second coming, a great work is to be accomplished through the promulgation of health principles. So as we get closer to the coming of the Lord, as we get closer to the final crisis, notice what it says, in the preparation of a people for the Lord's second coming, a what kind of work? A great work is to be accomplished through the promulgation of health principles. So if ever there was a time that we need to bring out God's health reform message, it is now. It is now. But we have to do it the way God prescribed it. So notice what inspiration goes on to say. Forgive me. I'm going back. It says the people are to be instructed in regard to the needs of the physical organism and the value of healthful living as taught in the. So what do you think the people should be receiving when we do our health work and teaching great principles? They should be receiving an understanding of the. Do you know how many medical missionaries do not know how to teach health reform through the Bible? Listen to what I'm saying to you. Do you know how many medical missionaries do not know how to teach health reform from the Bible? Oh, some of them go with theories. Others go with Ellen White. But that's not the instruction. The instruction from Sister White is educate the people on health principles, but teach them through what? Scripture. So you and I need to understand health reform from the Bible. I cannot begin to tell you how many trainings I have done. And I mean, I've done a lot, brothers and sisters, and all the trainings that I've done, it's, it, it never ceases to amaze me of how many medical missionaries come to the trainings. And when you start to ask them, okay, how do you go about this? How do you go about that? They many a times do not understand how health reform is revealed from the Bible. And therefore, their work is stunted because you and I cannot call Ellen White as an authority to non-Adventists. And our work is largely to the non-Adventist world. I'm going to show you. Watch. So look, it says, as taught in the scriptures, that the bodies which God has created may be presented to him a living sacrifice, fitted to render him acceptable service. There is a great work to be done for suffering humanity in relieving their sufferings by the use of the what? Natural agencies that God has provided. Now, we don't see that a lot in hospitals, do we? Do you understand that? I'm not here to say that hospitals are completely irrelevant. What I'm saying is, is that hospitals have their place, but please do not confuse a hospital with a sanitarium. You understand that? The sanitarium work worked in a different order than what we see through our hospitals today. All right? Hospitals we know, government funded, which means to a degree government controlled. And that can be a problem when we're trying to introduce biblical principles of healing. You understand that? That's going to be a problem. Okay? It says... By the use of the natural agencies that God has provided and, notice this now, that the use of the natural agencies that God has provided and in teaching the people how to prevent sickness by the regulation of the appetites and passions. Okay? Now watch. Going on. All of this comes from Councils on Health 206.3. Look at what it says. The people should be taught that transgression of the laws of nature is the transgression of the laws of God. Now, brothers and sisters, when was the last time you went to a hospital and somebody talked to you about the law of God? Do you understand what I'm saying? Again, am I saying hospitals are irrelevant? No, that's not what I'm saying. Hospitals have their place. But do not confuse a hospital with a sanitarium. The sanitarium work is what God endorsed. That's what God endorsed. 
And God endorsed that work. And he said that work is going to supply the work of how to minister to the people in the cities and show them a better way. So if ever there was a time now, some of you people here in Southern California, especially, listen, God has blessed some of you and you already know it. And I'm not, when I say bless some of you, I'm talking about financially. Some of you are blessed financially. When God gave you that money, he wants to give you the vision of what he wants so then you and I know where to direct our money. Some of us are putting our money in the thousands, if not the hundreds of thousands, perhaps even the millions. We are putting our money into works that won't last. When God says, here's a work that will last and this work is languishing. That's a problem, brothers and sisters. So we need to start understanding what constitutes sanitarium work. And then we need to look. And if we don't see one, then God says maybe he wants you to help start one. Now watch. It says they should be taught the truth in physical as well as in spiritual lines. That the fear of the Lord tendeth to life. If thou wilt enter into life, Christ says, keep the commandments. Live out my law as the apple of thine eye. God's commandments obeyed are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Our sanitariums are an educating power to teach the people in these lines. You understand that? So this is the great work that God has given to us. And we have the privilege, brothers and sisters, of seeing this thing get started. Some of you are doctors and physicians. I see so many of your faces. I've seen you over the years. Lord has blessed you. Some of you know cardiology very well, dental work very well, all these other things. Take these gifts, put it under the master. Let Christ anoint it in such a way that you can use it towards the sanitarium work. Because it's not going to be enough to just visit a city and do a bunch of free work. Listen to me, saints. I don't doubt men's motives. I believe there's a lot of us that do good things because we do love people and we want to help them. But it's possible that we can have a right motive but do a bad work. What I'm saying to you and I is that, listen, it's good when we say, let's go to a city and, and let's go ahead and do some, some things for people for free. We're going we're gonna to just... You do this and do that and so on. And so, on. But brothers and sisters, if it's not according to the blueprint, it won't last. It has to be the gospel of health. You got to do it God's way. You know, it's funny. I remember one time I was talking with a brother and he said to me, Brother Lemon, uh, I think he said something like, we're willing to give your institution money or whatever to do a work. But would you be willing to do this? And he was trying to get me to do something that I already knew was a violation of inspiration. Can you imagine somebody dangling that carrot of money in front of you? And you know you need it, you know? And here they're dangling that carrot. If you just do it this way, we'll give you the money. And I prayed, because I'm flesh like anybody else. You put that money in front of you, like, we could get a lot done with that. <laughs> but I'm so thankful when the mind is captive to the word of God. Amen. And I look back at it, and it's like the Holy Spirit just put these words right in my mouth. I said, brother... I said, I just told you that this method is not according to God's plan. I said, we have mastered doing work that's not according to God's plan. I said, I just want to be silly enough to try to just do exactly what God says and watch what happens. And so we rejected his offering and he never came back with another one. And that's all right, because you know what? God just filled the gap and sent in another donor. Oh, it was beautiful. To co-missions, we didn't know what was going to happen to the school. We were looking at everything. The missionaries were sleeping inside of a church in the basement. Going out, doing canvassing work in the most atheistic area of the United States of America. Gave out 600 great controversies, brothers and sisters. And the people received it with gladness. 
Here it is that all of a sudden we're wondering, how's it going to happen? What's going to happen? And next thing you know, there was a donor, and he, one day he was sitting down, and he thought about Tekoa, our school, and he said, you know, I'll do it. Yeah. And we didn't know what he meant by that. What do you mean you'll do it? He says, I'll write the check. Let's find the property. I'll write the check. We own that property now. We're not renting from some philistine. We, this is ours. You understand? Seriously, because we had some philistine experiences in the past. I'm telling you, listen, there's a war going on. Satan hates this work, brothers and sisters. He will fight this work until the end. But God has given us a blessed plan that, oh, if we follow it, brothers and sisters, great things will take place. It'll require patience. It'll stretch you to the end. But God gets the victory. Be of good cheer, Jesus says. I've already overcome the world. Amen. Now, looking at this, this is a sanitarium work. This is what God says he wanted. So when I look at this, this is what we call a sanitarium structure or the outpost center structure. Now, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to leave this image uh, via PDF with the leaders here at Southwest U Conference. And then any of you who want it, I'm sure they'll make it available somehow, maybe on the website or what have you. But this is literally how the original outposts were set up. What you would have is you would have your outpost center, which was your country training base center. That's, that's where the center was. That's the outpost. And then from that, you would have your workers' homes. Because you can have some people that's going to work with you full-time. We have workers that work with us full-time, so we have to go ahead and house them. That's only right. So you house them, you feed them, etc. So you got to have your workers' homes. Then you're going to have what's called home-like sanitariums. All of this is according to inspiration. Home-like sanitariums. Sanitariums were never meant to be big facilities. Remember the story of Battle Creek. When Kellogg lost his way and he started building big edifices with Battle Creek, God counseled, 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 counseled. Kellogg didn't listen. And after a while, between pantheism and doing things consistently out of harmony with God's will, God touched it and the whole place burnt up and the firemen came and tried to put the fire out. And every time the water would go on the fire, the fire would blaze even more. God was making a statement. I am the one that's doing this. I'm burning this thing down. Because it's outside of my will and I've warned and I've warned. And there does come a time where mercy runs out and judgment begins. So God did that. But this is what we're saying. We're trying to do it God's way. Home-like sanitariums. Sanitariums were never meant to be these big, incredible edifices. 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 bedroom hospital buildings. It was never meant to be like that. Supposed to be simple little home-like structures. Then you have your training institute. That's your Bible school. That's where missionaries come and they get trained on how to do gospel work. Then you have your home garden. Every outpost has to have a farm. Every outpost has to have a farm. So that means you got to understand agricultural work. you got to understand all those things, the gospel through agriculture. Beautiful. Industrial training, that's electric, woodwork, etc. People got to learn how to, to work for themselves so they can support themselves. And that way they don't have to go around begging every conference, please hire me as a Bible worker, when they're like, look, we have enough. We don't need you. You don't have to go around and begging for that. And I'm not knocking a conference for that. Listen, the conference can hire but so many people, all right? That's not a fault on them, unless there's finagling with the money. That's a different issue. We can't all graduate from schools and then just think we're going to run to the conference, hire us, hire us, hire They're going to say, look, we have enough. So now what are you going to do? Well, I have nothing to do, so let me go work at Wendy's. Let me go ahead and work in these places that are going to tempt me. And before you know it, you're slipping, cheating, eating burgers and fries and everything else. And, 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 and before you know it, you don't even practice health reform anymore. These are real scenarios of what have happened to so many gospel workers. I'm so serious. Medical missionaries eating burgers. It's like, so we have to have a way. If I can't get hired, can I still work for the master? There has to be a way. So we had to teach them trades. Outposts supposed to teach them trades. 
Then you have the publishing work, producing books, producing books, producing pamphlets, all of these things. Then medical missionary training so that they can work the sanitariums. And then the food factory. I got so many stories to tell you. I wish I could share it. I mean, there's a lot happening in the Northeast because everybody's afraid of the Northeast because of the snow. Y'all been spoiled. <laughs> so for, oh, I don't want to go to the Northeast. There's too much snow. It's like, it's snow. You can get all right. Put some boots on. Get some long johns. Get a goose down. You'll be okay. So literally, so my covenant with my wife, I tell you, I thank God for my wife. I'm going to introduce y'all to her in just a second. <laughs> and I'm just telling you because when I go there, I say, honey, I believe God wants us to go. We have, a, we have a beautiful country home in Georgia. A beautiful country home. Log home, built it. And it's very nice. Land, fruit trees growing all over the place and everything. Nice trail, big open pasture, running creek all year long, everything. And here I'm telling my wife, honey, I think we need to leave this so we can go. I'm not even going to tell you where we stayed. All I'll say is just think of sardines. Just think of sardines. That was our temporary house. And we had to go ahead and move up north. And the day we moved up north, the boy did the north welcome us. The nor'easter hit. Our van was covered almost to the top of snow. That was New England's welcome to the Lemon family. <laughs> but brother and sister, what we do? Me and my boys, and put on some Long John's jeans, Timberland boots. Went on out there, put our goose downs, our hats on, everything. Just shovel the snow. No big deal. You see, you can't run from heat. You understand that? When it gets hot, you're forced to stay inside, aren't you? Because it, it, hot is hot. You can't escape it. No matter how much you strip down, you can strip down but so much as a Christian. <laughs> so after a while, you, you, you can do but so much and hot is hot. But listen, when it gets freezing cold, we check the thing, zero degrees, negative four, negative 21. Okay, no problem. Just layer up. We layer up, go outside. Inspiration says God made the face to endure cold different from the extremities. So we go outside and we cover everything up but our faces. And when we go outside, the wind is just, and we just go outside and say, it's all right. <laughs> we just go outside, get what we got to get done. So you can hide from cold. You can't hide from heat. So sometimes you'd be amazed. There's some blessings up north. Why am I saying that? We need more workers. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Who shall come? And so it is that I'm going to leave this with you because it's not coming up right on the screen. And I really want to show you this because there's a city mission component. There's an outpost component. But I want you all to have it. I want you to study it. And I want you to pray and ask God, Lord, how can we get it here? Because there is a work that needs to be revived in the West Coast. The same way there's a work that needs to be revived in the Northeast. Well, going past that, Isaiah 58. The relief work. And when you think about this. God gave us a plan. It was a beautiful plan. Man, brothers and sisters, I, I tell you the truth. It's like when I think of what God has given to us. Oh, it's a blessing. He has taught us. This is how Jesus ministered to the people when he saw that the crisis was coming. If we do this work the way Christ did it, we can see a tremendous work finished. You would be amazed, brothers and sisters. So when you look at Isaiah 58, we have the council, right? Verses 6 and 7. The true fast. The true fast. What does it say? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Now, what's beautiful about this is that there's actually a spiritual and a literal work in these. 
The same way that I can cover someone's nakedness with literal clothing is the same way that we can show people how to cover their spiritual nakedness with the righteousness of Christ. You get that? So when you study these, this is what we have to do. You got to study it. Loose the bands of wickedness. Spiritual, literal application. Then undo heavy burdens. Spiritual, literal application. That's how you do it. You study each of them out that way. So that way you have a very comprehensive understanding of what God wants as we work the cities from the outposts, right? Now, we're told in the book, Welfare Ministry, listen to this. I have been instructed to refer our people to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Read this chapter carefully and understand the kind of ministry that will bring life into the churches. That's called revival. Isn't that something? Now watch this. Here's what it says. That's Welfare Ministry, page 30. It says, this is the special work now before us. All our praying and abstinence from food will avail how much? Nothing. Nothing unless we resolutely lay hold of this work. Sometimes we call people to fast, but it will avail nothing unless we resolutely lay hold of this work. So this becomes imperative. You understand? So God wants us to embrace a work that is what is termed a relief work by which we are able to provide Real practical demonstrations of Christ's likeness, or shall I say, true godliness, to a world perishing in sin. But one of the chief ways that we're going to minister to people is through showing them how to go from sad to glad. Sad, standard American diet. Glad, God's life activating diet. So you got to show them how to go from sad to glad. At this time, I'd like to invite my bride to come before us because we're going to talk a little bit about what we've done in the lines of cooking school evangelism. Uh, we've had the privilege of doing cooking schools throughout the U.S. as well as in other countries. And this is my wife, Alexandra. Hi, everyone. Amen. Now, I'm going to give her a mic here. I don't know if you all can get this mic. Come on. And what we're going to do is just share with you very briefly some principles that we have done in cooking school evangelism. Because you're going to find that one of the key ways you're going to win a lot of people is through food. Now, one of the first things you want to understand is when, we, when Jesus would minister to people, he provided them food, didn't he? He fed the hungry. Yes, he did. Well, there's some things you want to consider. Food, number one, is our medicine. We need to understand that. Uh, when you look at Psalms 104 and verse 14... The Bible says he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth. And the word service means to minister. So when God caused the herb to grow out of the ground, God gave that as a means of ministering to the needs of the body, ministering to the needs of man. And this is why the more that we learn how to eat food and teach people how to eat food that comes from the soil. Plant-based sources, what we call whole food, plant-based diet. The more that we show people how to eat in this way, it's an absolute blessing. Now, another principle we want to consider is, number one, in Councils on Diets and Foods, that is page 310, paragraph 2. It says, grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables constitutes the diet chosen for us by our Creator. These foods prepared in as what? Simple and natural a manner as possible are the most healthful and nourishing. They impart a strength, a power of endurance, and a vigor of intellect that are not afforded by a more complex and stimulating diet. So one of the first things we want to do is this. If you're going to conduct a cooking school, you got to remember that people 
are not like us. They don't appreciate the things we can appreciate. You might enjoy kale sandwiches. <laughs> but people are not ready for that. They may not be ready for that if they're used to blood, grease, and fat. That's what a lot of people are used to right now, blood, grease, and fat. That's what they eat all the time. So what we have to do is we have to help them and bridge them up. So if we're going to do a cooking school, there's a few things that we do first and foremost. Now, one of the things I want my wife to tell you about is, is the importance of your layout. When you think about doing a cooking school evangelism and you're thinking about, hey, you know what? We're getting ready to have a bunch of people come in. They've never maybe been through something like this. What's the first thing that people are going to see? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. What are some things that normally we would want to share with individuals or show individuals as it relates to the layout and maybe even some reasons why we do that? Okay, well, when my husband and I um, have done cooking classes in the past several years, um, certain, the way we display our table, we've learned that um, people have certain prejudices in their minds as to this new way of eating. So we wanna make it attractive, you know? Um, sometimes you can just have a simple, a neutral colored uh, tablecloth. You put some flowers, you mm -hmm. can have uh, fruits and vegetables in their natural state displayed and just make it interesting to the point where they're inquisitive like wow what is this this is, looks good this looks tasteful um, sometimes my husband and I have been in situations where you know uh, we've been invited to some homes of some people you know they had good intentions but um, the food they would have displayed wouldn't be really palatable it wouldn't look very attractive. So that's important when I teach my girls in the kitchen. Um, my father was a chef, so everything was attractive. Even the salad, everything just looks so good. So we wanna, you know, replicate that in our presentation. Um, as soon as they walk in, they wanna see, this looks good, this looks intriguing, I wanna try, because it, it is hard to let go of meat and some of these things that we've been accustomed to and to try these new ways of eating. So that's one way. Now, when you think about that, you know, she used the term palatable, which we know, of course, is dealing more so with our taste, but we're talking about presentable. So when you, when you look at how the food is laid out, you know, the first thing you want to consider, because sometimes you can make something healthy, but it may not look very good at all. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, where somebody says, but it's healthy. But you're like, but yeah, but it looks nasty. And, and there is a psychology, listen. We are told in volume four of the Testimonies to the Church, page 67. Now, this is for the evangelists in the room, which should be all of you. When you read that chapter, it's called Coworkers with Christ. When you read volume four, page 67, it actually says that as businessmen and merchantmen are excellent in their trade, ought not the evangelists to be so. And then it says in presenting the word of God and doing the work of evangelism, it says you need to understand the human mind and human nature. If I present something to the people that looks like mush, no matter how much vitamin A to Z it has in it, they're going to be like, I'm not eating that. Because there's a way the mind works. So the first thing you want to consider is, as she stated, you know, you want to make sure that everything, your layout is presentable. Let it look attractive, okay? Do you have some photos of some uh, meals that I think uh, Kayla did, like the cake. And... Yeah, you know, I'm, maybe in the next session I'll do it because I okay. have to search for it. Right, my time is right. limited. But yeah, our, our daughter's cooking. We're going to get to that section, mm -hmm. aren't we? So one of the first things you want to consider is, number one, presentation. Because the people are coming in, they already may have, as my wife stated, a skepticism to, what are you guys going to show us? 
you know? So as a result of that, make sure you do your best to knock it off guard by presentation. Even aprons and stuff. My wife would go ahead and get aprons and, and uh, my daughters and what have you, when they would be her helper, they would put on matching aprons and everything, and everything looks really nice and coordinated. And that appeals to the eyes. You'd be amazed at how it just disengages. It's kind of like an usher at a church. You know, the usher prepares the mind of the individual visiting for everything else that's coming. So sometimes your clothing, your presentation is the usher. It's preparing the mind of the people. So keep that in mind. Don't just have a dirty table or a table with pen and markers on it because the children were using it. You know, put a little cloth on it. And it might be something very inexpensive that you can get from Walmart or what have you. But remember presentation. But palatable is also important. It got to taste good. You can't go around telling folks, look, it's healthy. Eat it. It's like, no, it has to taste good, okay? The next thing that you want to do, when you're doing your cooking school, you want to make sure that you're introducing the components that the people need. And a lot of times, people don't understand what they need, which is nutrition. We eat food to get nutrition, okay? If you eat food for any other reason, we're not understanding why God gave us food. He gave us food for nutrition. It doesn't mean that we compromise taste, God forbid. But more important than taste is the nutrition, because a lot of us can make even dead tofu. You understand? In other words, we can burn it and cook it and fry it so strong that almost all of its nutritive properties are just gone. But it's not meat, you know, and then we're happy about that. And then when you squeeze the tofu, you see this pool of oil and stuff dripping on the side. It's like those are things that lets us know, hey, the nutrition has been compromised. So while we're trying to make good, healthy food, you want to keep in mind, hey, I got to make sure that I make it in such a way that it maintains these things. What is it that your body needs? Because all cooking schools should be based on what the body needs. Whatever you're presenting to the people should be based on what the body needs. So what is it that the body needs? It needs basically these four things. Complex carbohydrates, proteins, fats, and vitamins and minerals. This is what we need. So when you're thinking of the menu layout that you're going to do for your cooking class, you want to remember we have to demonstrate carbohydrates. We have to demonstrate good protein, good fats, and good vitamins and minerals. So whatever recipes you're putting together, try to make sure that you're incorporating these four absolute body necessities. Got to put it there because that way people can really get a whole plan. You don't want to do protein overload but no carbs. No carbs. That's how people's energy sources are going to start getting compromised. So you want to make sure that you have everything listed and laid out so that way it becomes easy. And also, I like giving rationales, like help them understand the whole grain. We were at a church in the U.S., and uh, there was a Filipino brother there. And I know there's a lot of my Filipino family here. And I, you know I love you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. Now watch this. <laughs> now watch. When I did the health message, and we did the health message, and we talked about Rice. We got into rice. We know many of our brothers and sisters, especially just from Asia generally, you know, they like white rice. They like white rice, okay? For many reasons. But the problem was this. What we were doing was showing the strip grain versus the whole grain. When you look at a whole grain, you got three components. Endosperm, bran, and germ. Now, if you look at this, your endosperm has your source of complex carbohydrates, your B-complex vitamins, which are good for your nervous system, and then, of course, your good proteins. Your bran, however, is your major fiber source. That's, where your, that's your bran. That's your major fiber source, as well as B-complex vitamins, trace minerals, and phytonutrients. And then your germ is where you get your EFAs, you know, your essential fatty acids. And that's your vitamin E, and then, of course, your B-complex vitamins and more trace minerals. When you eat white rice, you are stripping germ and bran, and all you're getting is endosperm. 
That's what you're getting when you have the regular white rice. So that's the reason why we want to encourage the people, no, 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 you got to try to keep the whole grain in the package and not do the polish process and all these other things. So that way you're getting the full package. So when you do a cooking class, explain. Try to give them as much wisdom and understanding as possible so that way they can understand the rationale. They didn't just see some nice person who just said, this is what you should be eating and they're just totally buying into you. Make all cooking classes very, very educational. Very educational. Help them understand, this is a complex carbohydrate. This is what it does for the body. This is a good protein. This is what it does for the body, etc. Walk them through the process so the people leave with really good education as well as things that are ultimately going to taste really good. Now, we're also going to talk about involvement. Who do you involve when you do a cooking class? When you do a cooking class, should it just be you doing everything? Or where are the roles of different involvement? So why don't you share with them some of the, like, how do we as a family, and we're, you know we're not your model. We are not your model. So what we're doing is we're testifying. And if you believe there's not something in our testimony that you think, hey, this would help me, this would benefit me in doing a cooking school, then you can go ahead and take it, all right? So we're just talking about our experience. When we do a cooking class, how do we divide all of the different roles that everybody plays? Why don't you share with them about that? Well, essentially, when we do a class, um, my daughters are very involved in the background work. Um, they were involved up front, but we found that um, volunteering people from the audience it's good for them to get their hands in there and to you know, try. A lot of parents are convicted and they want to change their diet, but they have teenage children or they have um, older kids that have accustomed to eating a certain way. So um, one thing that helps is having these young people come and actually try these things. We had a demonstration in New York. Um, these young people were sitting there like, you know, they were there because their parents invited them. And um, they were very skeptical, respectful, but skeptical. And we just did a simple cashew cheese recipe. And um, when we demonstrated it, they, you know, they were like, okay, you know. But when we went into the back for break and I offered one of them to try it, they, they ate the whole thing. They <laughs> ate the whole thing and we had to do like make more cheese for sampling. And the thing is that these young people, they, they just need to taste. They need to see, you know, and don't be afraid to incorporate some of these meals for them if there are any parents here that, you know, want to encourage their family to eat healthier. You know, you don't have to take everything away at first, but maybe incorporate certain meals um, and just let them try. But, yes, having them in the kitchen involved and helping create will give them more of a, a desire to try and to see. Amen. That, you know, I did this, let me see how it tastes, and oh, it tastes good, we can, we can probably do this. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you read Education, page 250, it tells us it was God's plan for the family to work together. Yes. So the more that you can get your family involved in a cooking school, it feels like we did it rather than daddy did it or mm -hmm. mommy did it. The children start to see their value in contributing to the work of the gospel, and we want them to understand you are God's workers as well. So it doesn't matter if they're male or female. Everybody can play their part, and no role is insignificant. They all hold their different places. But try to get the people involved, first and foremost, your family. Um, for the way we do our classes, my wife will often go through the recipes. I will often cover the education. 
I'll do it through books and things of that nature. I'll go ahead and talk about, well, why are we using cashews? Did you know cashews are high in magnesium? Or did you know that sesame seeds are high in calcium, zinc, otherwise? Why is zinc, calcium, magnesium, why is that important? Magnesium is a mineral that helps fight against prostate cancer. So the more that you eat this food, it's actually functioning, like God said, like a medicine. You know, you educate. You help them see that, man, when I eat this mac and cheese, when I eat this nut loaf, when I eat whatever I'm eating, they'll be able to say, man, not only does it taste good, but it's actually like I'm taking medicine. It's literally providing, you know, nutrients in my system. I want that. You want to be deliberate in pressing that psychology in their minds that when you're eating this food, it's literally ministering to your body. It's doing good things. It's going to work for you, you know, and the more that they see that, it makes it more exciting. And as my Brian stated, how much the more when children, we've seen many parents change their diets because their children like the food. Many parents cook the way they cook because they're concerned of the response of their children. They're concerned, will my children like this? Oh, my children will never eat this. But if you get my daughter Kayla to make cakes and cupcakes and all these things, our cakes and our cupcakes in our home are ask no question cakes. You don't have to ask me, is there any of this? Is there, is there eggs? Is there milk? Is there white sugar? Is there chocolate? Is there, you, know, you don't have to ask those questions. Everything is legit from start to finish. So what does that mean? That means that the, when the people eat it, when the people eat it, they're like, man, this tastes like a real cake. You know how it is. Some cakes taste vegan. You know what I mean? So what we're trying to do is say, no, no, no. We don't, we, you know, we, we're not vegans. Amen. We're health reformers. Amen. So we understand, no, no, no. We, you know, so we want them to, to get those nice benefits. As much as possible as we're winding down, also remember, when you do your cooking classes, choose recipes that are based, number one, on things that people already eat. People generally like four types of food groups, generally. Cheese, meats, sweets, and they need dressings. Now let's talk about that. Most people we know that are going to come to our cooking classes eat meat. So you definitely want to have a meat replacement as your initiative. You want to do a meat replacement. Most people like cheese. So you want to definitely have some cheese replacements. Most people have a sweet tooth. So you definitely want to have a good, healthy pastry. Most people either don't eat salad or do eat salad. And if they eat salad, they typically drown it in these very bad dressings with vinegar and all these other things that do a lot of damage to us. So we want people to eat more raw, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna encourage them to learn how to make salad dressings. Because it's not fair, we went to Bermuda, and when we went there, we said, how many of you eat salad? And a few hands went up, and then some of them, yes we do. What do you put on it? Oh, just a little lemon and salt. I said, well that sounds pretty punishing. <laughs> and they were like, well you know, we gotta eat salad. You know, and they just, they kinda just, Overlooked it, you know, and I said, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could show you how to make a ranch dressing? What if we could show you how to make a French dressing, show you how to make maybe even an Italian dressing? But, you know, you don't have to do it with all the compromises. We'll show you how to make it as nice, good, whole food groups, etc. They said, oh, show us. And we showed them. When we went to Minnesota, was it Minnesota? With the African group. That was Minnesota? When we went to Minnesota, they don't even eat salad. They said, we do not eat salad. And I was like, why? And it was like, because, you know, we just can't eat salad. You know, we heard the dressings are bad. And we don't like salad without dressing, so we just don't eat salads. <laughs> and I mean, like, it was like the whole group. It was like a whole church. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. I said, folks, we got good news for you today. Today begins your salad journey. 
And we just went in that class, just started whipping it up, and they just started pouring those dressings on, and man, people eating salad. They were eating salad and eating it up. So, it, I mean, we went to Alabama, you know, when folks, folks are still eating possum. You know, these animals running across the street, they, they literally eating this stuff. So we did major evangelistic thrust, and oh, it was a blessing. And we just, and, and the people there, the, you know, some people call it the dirty South, you know, and we went there and they were just, people love this stuff. So our goal is to get them to the more simplified. We do want to get people to the place that they can learn how to enjoy some rice and beans with some steamed cabbage and a good raw salad. That's eating simple, yet rice and bean, complete protein, your salad, vitamins and minerals, you know what I'm saying? So you're still getting all your food groups in there, but it's real simple. We want to get people to there, but the goal is, is that, hey, we got to meet people where they're at because that's what Jesus did with us. He met us where we were, and then he brought us up higher. Meet the people where they're at, but bring us up higher. You understand? There's a lot more that we can cover in our uh, cooking class and in cooking school evangelism. Um, we would be happy to talk with you more about it when we're done. But, you know, we, our time is pretty much up, and we got to get ready for the next session. So these are just some simple principles that we share that I believe that the more we learn how to govern these things, of course, never do a cooking class and not let the people try the food. Make sure you do faithful head counts. There's nothing worse than when you prepare food and you have to go out to the people and say, we're very sorry, we have run out of food. If you want to see some folks just turn into some angry people, that is a way to do it. And th these are some things we went through. I so, mean, they are understanding, but it, it's really sad. It's discouraging because they yeah. want to try it. but Yeah. Know. So, you know, keep these things in mind, saints. There's so much more to share. But the key is God has given us a blueprint. He's given us a plan that if we follow this plan, working the cities from the outpost, ministering to people, showing them how to go from sad to glad, etc., ministering to the various needs, doing the work of Isaiah 58, the relief work. The more that we do these things, we are literally walking very much in the pattern of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of what he did when he saw the crisis approaching. And this is the work that God wants us to do as well. If it's your desire to say, Lord, by your grace, I want to play my part faithfully in doing this work of which we study today, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me. All right. All right, let us bow our heads. And we're going to ask, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for this gathering and for this information that you've given to us. Forgive us, Lord, if we've known these things and we did not practice them. But I thank you, Lord, that you're a God of redeeming. And I ask you, God, to please help us to reflect your character. Let this whole convocation not be in vain, but let us apply these things faithfully by your grace, by your strength, Lord, that we may be a spectacle and draw all people to you. I thank you so much for using us, Lord and allowing us to have the privilege of representing you on this planet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Thank you.